Well, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Revelation chapter 18. And I entitled this sermon, A Tale of Two Cities. I know that's not an original title. It's been claimed before. But why I named it this or entitled it this is because when we look at the juxtaposition of chapter 18 and the first 10 verses of chapter 19, we see two responses, two responses to the same event. Now, we're sort of used to this, aren't we? When you have a favorite sports team, there is one group at the end of the game who wins, one group at the end of the game who loses. The group who loses, they have to deal with it. They're upset. They're lamenting the loss of their home team. Where when you look at the response of those who are victorious, there's a celebratory nature. They're responding with cheers and thanks. We see it in politics as well. One group laments the loss. One group gives thanks for the victory. Well, certainly that's what's going on here, but on a much more important scale. When we look at the bigger scheme of things, athletes and politicians do not matter in the long haul. What we really see when we look in the Word of God in the book of Revelation is the crash of a system that has stood opposed to God from the fall of man until God sets things right, recorded in the book of Revelation. And we see, first of all, in chapter 18, the response of the earth, the city of Babylon as it's pictured for us in the Scripture. And we see that there is much sorrow, a lamentation of its destruction. And then when we come to the 19th chapter, what do we see? We see the city of God. We see all that God stands for, His kingdom, all that God is. And we see the response of heaven to the victory of God, the crash of this terrible world system that has stood opposed to God, the end of it, never to rise again, never to come to the same place of prominence. And so that's what we want to see this morning as we look into this text. Now, as we come to the first part of this passage, the whole of chapter 18 is the response of the earth to the fall of Babylon. So let's revisit for a moment who Babylon is. Now, last week we had probably one of the most difficult passages in the whole book of Revelation as we tried to explain the thread of this worldview that Babylon has that is traced throughout the Scripture. We saw that it is a worldview that is anti-God. It is a worldview that elevates man. It is a worldview that devalues God. This has been a thread that has run from the fall throughout human history. And it has been the prominent worldview of this world. It stands opposed to God. What we see in the book of Revelation, though, is this truth. This worldview will come to an end. God will defeat it. It's going to come crashing down, and this is by God's design, by God's purpose, 
by God's plan. So what we'll see is an end of this wicked world system. And what we find here in chapter 18 is, first of all, an exclamation of this end. Look at what the Scripture says. Verse 1, chapter 18. After this, I saw another, another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So do you catch the imagery that we see here of this angel announcing something that is very important, that is pivotal for human history. This angel is descending with all of the glory of heaven, all of the glory of God, and this angel is making a significant announcement. Look at verse 2. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. What's being expressed? Well, first of all, we really catch the big picture with the first statement recorded there in that second verse. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, this is not the first time this statement has been made in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, verse 8, we saw this same statement being made. In chapter 16, verse 19, same statement. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And you know, as I started pondering this, as I was looking through the Scripture, why so much detail, why so much attention devoted to the fall of Babylon? Two whole chapters in the book of Revelation dedicated to the fall of Babylon, and that is because Babylon has been such a part of our world. It has been the engine that drives the greed, the sin, the immorality, all of the wicked things of our world have been driven by this worldview that God is unimportant, man is all-important. God is irrelevant. We need not give Him any thought. That has been the view of Babylon, this system that stands against God. And you know, as I started thinking about this, I started thinking about what the same author that wrote Revelation wrote in 1 John. In 1 John, the Apostle John gives this warning to believers. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, here he's not talking about the globe, the earth, the physical world. He's talking about a mindset, a worldview, a viewpoint that is driven by what follows. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. Now, you know, flesh means that part of us that stands against God, that wants to have our own way. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. In other words, when I look at something and I want it, that is the only ethic that I have. Never mind if it's not good, never mind if it's sinful. If I see it and want it, then it's mine. And the pride and possessions, also called the pride of life. These are the principal drivers 
of Babylon, the great prostitute, that we looked into detail with in chapter 17, but is now announced as fallen in this very passage. And what we see discussed further is the spiritual dynamic of this city, Babylon. City, I don't think necessarily means a physical city, but a viewpoint that has been held by man throughout the existence of man as a fallen individual. So, let's look at what this is described as in this text. She has become a dwelling place for demons. The demonic influence on this world system, worldview that stands opposed to God, that seeks to promote man and devalue God, this has been the strong influence on this worldview. There are spiritual dynamics at work that seek to draw people away from God and to this system of thought that's built on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at what else it says. It is a haunt for every unclean spirit. Now, the unclean spirits would again be demonic activity. You know, there's a spiritual dynamic and work in this world that we can't see with our physical eyes, but it is present, and it is strong, and it seeks to influence the hearts and the minds of people. This system, according to the Word of God, right here, will fall. And then, look at what else it says. It is a haunt for every unclean bird, for every unclean, detestable beast. Now, these are those that stand against the principles, the teachings, the law of God. Babylon was everything that is against the purpose and the plan of God. And it's headed for a fall. That's what the Word of God tells us in plain speech right here in this passage. So then we come to the fourth verse. And as we come to the fourth verse, we find that the Word of God has initially a message for those who come to faith during the tribulation who will become believers in God rather than following the path of Babylon, the great prostitute. And that message is given to us right here in verse 4, and it precedes an explanation of the fall of Babylon by this heavenly voice. So look at what the fourth verse says. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, this message to the believers who will come to faith during the tribulation, their message is a message that has been to the people of God throughout the history of the people of God. Do you realize in the Old Testament, God would often tell the nation Israel, come out from the nations around you and separate yourselves. Don't behave like the idolaters and the immoral people in the world around you. Live differently. That was why God put into place the law so that His people could have a roadmap as to how to live righteous lives. He wanted them to live separated lives. For the church, 
We are told to come out from the world system. We saw it in John where John told us in that passage we read just moments ago, do not love the world. In other words, don't buy into this system that stands opposed to God. We are to live differently. The Apostle Paul said this to the church at Corinth, What agreement has the temple of God with, <clears throat> with idols? For we are the temple of God, of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, now look at the command part of this, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And I will touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this idea of separation, what does it mean? What it means, very simply, is this. I am not to embrace the attitudes or the actions of a system of thought that stands opposed to God. Now, as Christians, we would look at that and we'll say, well, of course. But what do we see? There is always this pressure, this temptation, and I would even submit to you an indoctrination by the world around us to try and force us into adopting the behaviors and the thought processes and the attitudes of this world. If I'm a child of God, I'm to live differently. And here, in chapter 18, this is what God is calling those who will be a part of the tribulation, who are believers, to do as well. Now, you think we have a lot of pressure to buy into the world system and the worldview. Imagine living during the tribulation as we have seen people described to us the, the, the living conditions that they face. They're horrible. There is pressure economically, there is pressure politically, there is pressure as far as saving your own life or the life of your family to embrace the worldview of Babylon, the great prostitute that stands against God. And so what God is saying to His people is, don't buy in. Don't go along with it. Live distinctly. Live differently. Here's the idea. Your struggle to live a separated life from this world system, being in the world but not of the world, that struggle will be but a short time. You have eternity to look forward to. But contrast that with the description of what happens with the crash of this world system that stands opposed to God. Look as the text continues at verse 5. Why is God bringing His wrath against this world system that has stood opposed to Him? Look at verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, the first reason that God is bringing His wrath against this world system that has perpetuated so much evil is this. Sin has been piling up. The interesting picture in Scripture is God in His long-suffering and patience has allowed the sin of this world to collect, and collect it has. The description is piling to heaven itself. It is a stench and an offense to God, the sin of this world. 
And so what God is saying in this text is, I have reached my limit with sin. I will no longer treat it with long-suffering. My wrath is coming. And it's because of these sins and iniquities that have been piling up. Look at verse 6. It goes on to say this, pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. Now, here, what the Word of God is talking about is this. There's a principle in Scripture. The punishment fits the crime. Sometimes we even put it, what goes around comes around. And that's certainly what's being described for us here. All of the sins that Babylon has perpetrated against God and against the people of God, God is going to set things right. He's going to bring about His judgment on a system that has hurt His people. And in His long-suffering and patience, He has stepped back and He has allowed it to continue, but now, now He repays. And they will get back double what they have dished out. Now, this is strong language, folks, and I recognize this, but understand, God has been patient for centuries, millennia, with the sin of man, and now God is going to crush the system. Look at verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like a measure of torment and mourning Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Now, here is the pride of Babylon. The pride of Babylon is, I can continue in sin, and there is absolutely no consequence for it. I'm in charge. That's what she's saying. I'm the queen. Nobody touches the queen. The big lie of sin is, you can get away with it. You can do that which is against what God has said, and there are no consequences. This has been a doctrine that Babylon has supported. And she has bought her own doctrine. So she believes nothing will ever touch me. I am a system that is in place that can and never will fall. I'm good. What we see in this text is the fact that God is going to bring this crashing down. Look at what verse 8 summarizes for us. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. No escape. God is bringing devastation to this system that has stood opposed to him and persecuted his people. And God will deal with them according to their sin. So we look at this picture and it's crystal clear, isn't it? God is going to bring terrible things against this system of thought that has fought God. Then we come to verse 9. And as we come to verses 9 through 20 we see the responses of people to the fall of this world system that stands contrary to God. 
It begins in the ninth verse, and it talks about the response of the politicians, the political powers that be, that have bought into the system of eliminating God and promoting themselves with their own greed and lust and desire. And look at what it says in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Listen, when this world system is destroyed, there will be many who will look and lament it. They'll say, wait a minute, this is where we've had our power. This is the system that made us who we are. I've invested my life in this, and I'm counting on it as my security. That prop will be knocked out from under them. Look at their response. Alas, alas, verse 10. You great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The fall that was announced at verse 2 will be seen by the supporters of this worldview, this world system, and they will lament its crash. Why does God include this in the Word of God? You know, there are many people who build their lives around things that are not foundational to God's truth. They build their lives with their desires, with what's popular, with the latest from their peer group or the in people. And they say to themselves, this is the path to follow. This is the course to follow. We really ought to follow this. And what the Word of God is teaching us is this. This ends with a crash. And I believe that this is in the book of Revelation because it elicits a question from me. Am I investing my life in things that are destined to be destroyed and crash? Or am I investing my life in the things of God? These kings were investing their lives in the wrong thing. And when that prop that they put all of their eggs in that basket with, when that thing is knocked out from under them, they're devastated. There's nothing in one hour, everything I built my life on was taken away. That's the idea. I don't know how people face disaster without God, but this is a case study in it right here. Then we see something else. Starting at verse 11, we see the industry, the merchants, the materialism of this world come crashing down. Look at verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. The, the idea is this will be not only a, a systemic political crash, but it's going to be a world market crash. Now, we all saw what happened in 2008 when there was a blip. A lot of people became unsettled with the crash of the market and some of the finances, that's nothing compared to what's being described in this passage. All of the people that have invested their lives in materialism, all of the people who have said money and the things it can buy are the things that give my life meaning 
and support are going to have a rude awakening according to the Word of God. Now, what you'll see, and you can go home and read this a little bit later, in verses 12 through 13, there is a list of the market of John's day. He was giving an example of the kinds of commodities that are traded, the spices, the oils, the wheat, the cattle, the sheep. Yes, even slavery, human slavery was a part of this world system, something God didn't design, but something that man used in Babylon the Great and that worldview. It's going to come crashing down. And so what the Scripture tells us in verse 14 is this, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all of your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Now look at this last statement, never to be found again. This reversal where the merchants and the materialists have made the rules, have driven the system, that system crashes. They no longer make the rules. They no longer cheat and abuse people. It's come to a close never to be reinstituted. You see, when Christ returns and establishes His kingdom on earth, that will have no place in His kingdom, and He will see to it. And then look at the next part of this passage. As we come to verse 15, it says, The merchants of these wares who gain their wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. They've lost everything. They're weeping. They're saying, we have nothing. We had everything, but now we have nothing. And look at their lament. Alas, alas, for the great city that has clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Build your life on materialism and wealth, and you can't take it with you. But here it's not even them not taking it with them. Here it disappears. It's blown away. It's laid waste. Finally, look at the last part of this passage. Starting in the middle of the 17th verse, it goes on to say this, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city, or what city was like the great city, they ask. And they threw dust on their Heads, and they wept and mourned, crying aloud, Alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now what is being stated here is this. These people who have lived this life of wealth Two things. Number one, they recognize that it's all gone. But number two, and this is amazing, they recognize there's a different response from the people of God than their response. The light is finally clicking on a little bit that I've backed the wrong horse. <laughs> I've invested in the wrong dividends 
and investments, and it's all gone. My world has come crashing down. So, verse 21 talks about, after these expressions of sorrow, how Babylon, as a world system, will be eliminated from the earth. Look at verse 21. When a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So when the Scripture talks about taking a millstone and throwing it into the depths, that means that it goes to a place never to come back. A millstone you know, is a large stone that was used for grinding wheat down to flour. In those days, if you chucked that thing off a ship into the deepest part of the sea, it was not coming back. Nobody could go down that far to get it. This is the imagery of what's going to happen with this world system that has stood opposed to God. But then something that is unexpected. Look at verse 22. The sounds of harpists and musicians, of flute playing and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of many crafts will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. Now, something, unfortunately, that the world system has done is co-opted many of the arts that God designed for His glory, and they have used it as a mechanism to promote the worldview of Babylon. When you listen to the words of music, when you watch some of the plays that express this worldview that is opposed to God, it's stark. Paul and I were doing a little binge-watching TV yesterday, and as we analyzed the message of some of the TV shows that are current TV shows and what they're trying to get people to buy into, it was amazing. As a matter of fact, I couldn't contain myself. Uh, I drug a pulpit into the living room and started preaching. No, not really. <laughs> I preach from my recliner, but... Uh, <laughs> I didn't drag the pulpit in because I don't have one in my house. But it's stark. They, they, they take things that God gave us to glorify Himself, and they co-opt them to indoctrinate people and to have them buy in to a worldview that stands opposed and contrary to God. There will be no celebration. Look at verse 23. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who have been slain on earth. Really, what's being stated here is this. Babylon has fallen. Goodbye and good riddance. That's the idea. Now, the earth has that response to Babylon and its great fall. But what I wanted to do this morning was move into the 19th chapter. Only 10 verses. There were 24 in, in 18. But we're just going to take the first 10 verses. And what we're going to do is have this lined up just with the responses of a wicked world and see how heaven responds to the fall of Babylon. 
where all of the earth laments this, and they're looking and they're sad at the loss of this world system. Heaven looks at it and it says, finally, finally, God is going to stop this world system. So let's look at these. First of all, we see elation because God's justice prevails. What we see in these 10 verses is exaltation of God. And it begins with verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So, change of scenes. Chapter 18, planet earth, angel comes down, announces the destruction of this world system. Now in chapter 19, that scene has changed. We're in heaven, and we hear the voices of not one angel, but a multitude. And this multitude is expressing praise to God for what He has done in defeating sin, defeating evil, destroying this worldview that stands opposed to Him and His people. Look at what they say in the middle of that first verse. Hallelujah! You know what hallelujah means? It means praise God. What they're saying is, we celebrate the demise of a wicked, destructive system that has harmed so many through the ages. And we give all the praise to God because this was His doing. Look at what He says. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So in other words, God has delivered us from this. And it says, His judgments are true and just. In other words, God is finally dispensing the justice that many of them cried for throughout their lives, and now it's being visited on earth. It goes on to say that He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. In other words, finally, finally, what we've been waiting for has taken place all at the hands of God. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We love to see its destruction because it was so harmful. That's the idea. Never to return. We also see this. As we come to verses 4 and 5, we see that there is a statement about the extermination of this world system. And it shows who is on the throne. Look at that fourth verse. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. Now, when the scripture talks about God being seated on the throne, you know what it's talking about? He's in charge. He is sovereign. He is king over his creation. And what is being recognized by the four living creatures, these angels that surround the throne every day, 24-7, and the 24 elders who are also around the throne of God, all of them are coming together and they are saying, Amen. In other words, now it's as it should be. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God all you His saints who fear Him, small and great. So this is the heavenly celebration. Contrast that to the response of the world. 
Alas, alas, all is lost. In heaven, hallelujah, victory won. Stark contrast. And I think that's by design. I think John wants us to see the importance of grasping these truths. Then we come to the eighth verse. And the eighth verse talks about another event that is coming, a celebration. And what it is is this. It is the exaltation by and of the bride of, church, of, of Christ, and that is the church. Now look carefully with me, starting at the sixth verse. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So this is a loud praise. And this is what those who are mentioned in this part of the text, say, Hallelujah, again, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So they praise Him for being the God who reigns. And then look at this. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. Now look at the next statement. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now, what is this talking about? What is the marriage of the Lamb? Sometimes we as the church in Scripture are referred to as the Bride of Christ. What is being described here is a celebration for the Bride of Christ, the church. We are in heaven during the tribulation, having been raptured. And this is our time to celebrate with God His great victory over the fall of Babylon. Many who will be there have been martyred by Babylon during their sojourn here on earth through the ages. Read church history, and there's a bloody thread throughout it that runs with the martyr's blood. Here at the marriage feast, the celebration of the Lamb, the church takes pause recognizes our position as the bride of Christ, and we celebrate. Isn't it amazing that with the fall of Babylon, in the 23rd verse of 18, it said, no more weddings, no more celebrating. What goes on in heaven? Complete celebrating. And the marriage feast of the Lamb. We exalt God together but we are raised to such a beautiful position as the bride of Christ. That's the picture of this scripture. And folks, I, I want you to get what this is saying. This is you. This is the church. This is who we are, precious to God. Loved by God. Now finally, in His presence, celebrating our connection with Jesus Christ. That is what we have to look forward to. Now again, I can't help but notice what the world system has to look forward to. Crash, fall. John even said in that passage that we read earlier in 1 John that the world is going to be destroyed. That world system. They have nothing of eternal blessing and they lose their temporal blessing. That's what the Scripture warns about. But for us, we're in the presence of God. 
And we are expressing praise to our God because we are the bride of Christ. Look at verse 8. After talking about us being the bride, having been made ready, it says this, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen, linen excuse me, is the righteous deeds of the saints. We're clothed, washed clean, without spot or blemish before our God, celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. That brings us to our last point. The last part of this passage says this. There is an exuberant celebration that awaits us. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we're going to pause there for a moment because I want you to picture what's going on. The marriage supper. This was, in the Middle East, the biggest celebration of your life. This was pivotal. This was so important. It was a time of celebration for days on end. And it was a time of thanks and community and fellowship and a time of recognition of the sanctity of marriage and a celebration of it. This is what we experience in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb. God is going to celebrate with us because we are the bride of Christ. Now, the last part of this passage. When John hears this, look at his response. The angel says to me, these are the true words of God. In other words, John, this is going to happen. God's word is truth. But then this, then I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. Now, John got caught up in the moment, fell down at the feet of the angel, and the angel said, whoa, stop. Don't worship me, worship God. This is what God's people and angels do. Man will come and say, worship me if they are not followers of God. A demon will come and say, worship me, because he is not a follower of God. But this angel corrects John and tells him, you must not do that. And he goes on to say, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Listen. All that we've been seeing in the book of Revelation is really summed up in that one thought. Why all of this discussion about end times? Why all of this discussion about the defeat of sin and the victory of God? It all centers on who? Jesus. Peter wrote this. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, listen to the prophecy of God's Word. Pay attention to it. And then he goes on to say this, 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Listen, John did not make this up. This was something that God gave him to communicate to God's followers. But then it goes on to say this, for prophecy was never produced by the will of men. Now look at this. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These things that we read in the book of Revelation were superintended by the Holy Spirit and supernaturally inspired as God's truth. So as we read these things, it is with full knowledge that God's Word is true. And this will come to be. So what does that mean for me as a believer today? There's one of two paths I can follow. I can buy in to Babylon, the great prostitute, set aside God's teachings and God's truth, and live like the world around me. I will suffer when I do that, but I can do that. It's a foolish choice. The right choice is to celebrate with the people of God and the city of God. To look at the position, the exalted position that we enjoy as the bride of Christ and live accordingly. So don't just look at this as prophecy and this is stuff that's way out in the future. Look at this as something that traces for us two outcomes. One outcome is destructive in nature. The other outcome is beautiful and glorious. And we could give thanks for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for its clarity. And we would ask God that you would bless this time that we've spent in the Word May it be pleasing to you. May it be transformative for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.